you're listening to the Trinity Podcast. We are a multi-site church in the Chicago area whose mission is to help you look, live, and love more like Jesus. So have you ever walked into a room and realized you found yourself in a situation and in a conversation where you had no idea what was going on? I think this is a fairly common occurrence for many people. I remember one time in particular was when I first started going away to college. I had signed up for an Arabic class because my degree was in Islamic studies, and so I had to take that language in order to understand a little bit about that religious tradition. And the very first day I walked into my class, my teacher just started the class by speaking to all of us in Arabic. Now, what he was doing is he was trying to get us used to the, the, the sound and the intonation, and ultimately he wanted us to understand that his expectation was that we would grow in our fluency. But for about the first five minutes as he went around the room just talking in Arabic, I, like the rest of the students, just sat there and we were like, what is going on? <laughs> what did we just sign up for? I thought that this was Arabic 1, not advanced Arabic. And the reason I bring this up is because I think when it comes to Christianity and to the Bible and to our faith, there are many people who open up the pages of scripture or they walk into our churches and they're like, I have no idea what's going on. What is this all about? Which is why I think it's really good to go back and to really begin to understand our faith and the scriptures on their own terms to do a little bit of translation and to really understand what this whole Christian thing is all about. And that's why this holiday that we celebrate this weekend is so important. It's the festival of Pentecost, and in many ways, it's what we could consider the birthday of the church. It's a story that's recounted in one of the earliest narratives that we have of the life of the early Christians, a book called the Book of Acts, and it's found in the New Testament. Acts records how this Jesus movement got started. It helps to reorient us to the story and to really understand what is going on. And in many ways, as we dive back into it and begin to wrestle with it on its own terms, what we find is a very surprising faith, with a very surprising message. And that's really what I want us to talk about this weekend. We're going to look back at Acts chapter 2, the very first moment where we see the church beginning to expand and move outward. Because it's in Acts chapter 2 that we actually encounter the very first recorded sermon. You see, Jewish people from all around the Roman world had gathered in Jerusalem for this festival, this Pentecost festival. It was a harvest festival. It was also a time in which, in which many Jewish people were commemorating the giving of God's law to Moses on Mount Sinai. It was a, a day in which people from a variety of different places around the known world were gathered together. And it's in that moment that Peter, one of the closest friends and first disciples of Jesus, gets up and gives his very first message. And when we look at the message at face value, initially it seems like one of those moments, right? We're walking into a conversation that we don't fully understand. In fact, the people themselves listening to Peter and the other apostles beginning to preach were themselves confused and wondering what the heck is going on. But as we walk our way through his message slowly, what we find is that it tells us four surprising things. Four surprising things that it tells us is, number one, that history isn't random. Two, that God is real. 
three, that humanity is broken, and four, that hope exists. In fact, it's a good summary of what Christians believe and have been proclaiming down through the centuries. So I would invite you to just follow along with me as we move through this story. It begins with this incredible moment where God's Holy Spirit falls on the disciples of Jesus who are gathered together in Jerusalem. This is about 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. And according to the Gospels, not only did he rise again, but he's ascended into heaven. And he told them to wait in Jerusalem until he gave them power from on high. And so uh, the writer Luke records this moment when God's Spirit falls down upon his followers and they begin to preach. And initially, the people are wondering, what does this all mean? What's going on? And this is how Peter responds. He says, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. See, hearing Jesus' followers starting to preach in many different languages, the crowds were wondering what was really going on. And some of them were even starting to laugh at them because they heard these fellow Jewish men now speaking in other languages. And they're just like, what, what's up with these guys? Are they drunk? Are they babbling? I don't even understand the words coming out of their mouths. And Peter says, no, this is something that God always promised would happen. And he goes right to the Old Testament prophet Joel. You see, what Peter is trying to help the people understand is that history isn't random. That actually all of human history is moving toward a point. That actually there's this plan that God has had throughout human history to draw all things back to himself. The reason he goes to the prophet Joel is because throughout the Old Testament, there were these messengers of God who came to his people saying, God has a plan and a purpose. There is a day coming when he will come again in glory and make all things new. That history is actually moving toward a point, moving toward a purpose, moving us ultimately back toward. God. And while we in our modern day American context might not be that familiar with prophets or this idea of prophecy, I still think that this is a very relevant message for us because it tells us that history has a point. History isn't random. Because I think many people, when they look around at our world today and as they move through the day in and day out of the chaos of this life, wonder, is there really a point to it all? In fact, I think it was said best in the 2014 series, True Detective, in which Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson play two detectives who are tracking down a serial killer. And at one of the slower moments in the series, they're both riding in the car together. And Woody Harrelson turns to Matthew McConaughey and, and asks his character, what is it that you actually believe? And he responds with these words. He says, it's all a ghetto, man, a giant gutter in outer space. I think human consciousness is a tragic misstep in evolution. We became too self-aware. Nature created an aspect of nature separate from itself. We are creatures that should not exist by natural law. You see, I think what he's articulating is what um, we might call pessimism, even nihilism. This place that many people arrive at when they realize that there's something wrong with our world. 
that even in the moments when we feel like we finally achieved everything that we always thought we would want, we still feel empty inside, that nothing really seems to satisfy. And we start to wonder, is this all just one big cosmic joke? But one of the things that I find interesting about what he says is this. He says that we are creatures that should not exist by natural law. And yet we do. Even how he talks about this, he says that nature created an aspect of nature separate from itself, seems to acknowledge that there's some sort of personality out there making a decision which has resulted in our existence, which by natural law shouldn't even be here. I think what he's ultimately pointing to is something that C.S. Lewis said incredibly well in his book, Mere Christianity. He says that creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. And if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it in the first place, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. See, he's pointing at the fact that if we have these desires, then there must be a reason, a cause. The very fact that we feel that there should be something there and that there isn't acknowledges the fact that we're searching for something. And one of the bold truths that Peter is proclaiming on that very first Pentecost in which we still proclaim today as Christians is that history isn't an accident, that those desires are real, that there is a purpose for life which has been written into the fabric of creation and an ultimate end to which God is drawing all of us. It means that life isn't an accident. History isn't an accident. You aren't an accident. There's a purpose that we're all driving toward. And that brings us to the second surprising truth, and that is that God is real. The purpose that's written there is written by a God who actually enters into the story, who enters into world, to our world in time and in space and in history. You see, this is one of the greatest, most challenging claims of Christianity, is that it all hinges on a historical event. Because this is what Peter says next, after quoting from the prophet Joel. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. See, at the very center of the Christian message is a historical event. This idea that God actually took on flesh, entered into our world, lived among us, preached to us, shared in our sufferings and our joys, died, was buried, and rose again from the dead. In fact, at one point, one of the earliest Christian leaders, a guy by the name of Paul, put it this way. He says, if Christ is not raised from the dead, then we are of all people most to be pitied. You see, everything about the Christian message hinges on the reality of this event 
that Jesus Christ was God, that he lived, died, and rose again in time and in history, and that there's evidence that we can explore for it. In fact, I I love how the late uh, Dr. Tim Keller put it in his book, Hope in Times of Fear. He notes how many historians have actually had to wrestle with with two key facts that Christians have proclaimed down through the centuries. In fact, he notes the work of the, of the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, who says that if you rule out a resurrection, you have a formidable challenge to come up with a historically possible alternate explanation for these two facts, that Jesus' tomb was empty and that hundreds of people claimed to have seen the risen Christ, as well as for the birth of the church itself. He writes, the early Christians did not invent the empty tomb and the meetings or sightings of the risen Jesus because nobody was expecting this kind of thing. No kind of conversion experience in the ancient world would have invented it. No matter how guilty or how forgiven they felt, no matter how many hours they poured over the scriptures to suggest otherwise, is to stop doing history and enter into a fantasy world of our own. See, what N.T. Wright was noting and what many historians have noted if they honestly looked at the first century is that if you wanted to start a religion, this is not the way to do it. That there are many other ways in which you could get followers to follow you, especially in a pagan world where there were so many different religious options. You could promise them health or wealth or prosperity. You could promise them secret knowledge or insights to deeper kinds of philosophy. You could promise them a better moral or ethical system that would make more sense of their lives. But the one thing that nobody was promising, much less expecting, is that your hope would ultimately be found in a man who had been put on trial as a criminal, executed by the authorities, and rose from the dead again. Over and over again, scholars of the ancient world have said, that's not the way you would start a religion. It doesn't explain the explosive growth of the early church. The only thing that can possibly explain it is that this actually happened. And that if it did, it changes everything. Often people wonder, is God real? Has he left any evidence for us to explore? And the overwhelming testimony that we find right here in Acts chapter 2 is that he has, he did. God entered into our world and left behind a record of himself, something that we have to wrestle with, examine, and ultimately answer for. That's the second surprising thing that we find in the very first Christian sermon. And that leads us to the third surprising thing that we find in this message, and that, that, and that is that humanity is broken. Here's how Peter puts it. He notes the fact that we, with the help of wicked men, put Jesus to death by nailing him to the cross. He highlights the fact that it is actually our guilt that put him there. He says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, Lord and Messiah. See, Peter says, You have rejected God. That we, as human beings, are guilty. Now, you might sit there and say, Wait a second, what do you mean I've rejected God? What do you mean that, that we're guilty for his death? I, I, I'm, I'm not opposed to God. I'm open to that whole idea. But one of the things that I have found over and over again, especially in my early years of wrestling with the truth of Christianity, is this. Christianity actually removes all of my excuses. 
See, for a long time, I considered myself a skeptic. I would have friends who would, who would come at me and try to encourage me to take a second look at faith and at God and at religion. And, and every time I would throw up excuses, I would say things like, well, if God were real, he would give us evidence that he exists. If God were actually real, he, he wouldn't just stand aloof from his creation. He would step in and experience all of our pains and sufferings. He would actually be big enough to enter into the mess of this world with us. That if God were really real, why doesn't he just forgive everybody? If he really is love, as you guys say, why doesn't he just forgive everyone and, and, and offer them a free pass into heaven? If God were real, I would want him to provide some sort of promise for eternity. Some sort of way that I could know for certain that there is life after death and a hope worth believing in. But see, that's the thing about what Peter is saying. In Jesus Christ, in his, in his life, death, and resurrection, we actually have answers that remove all of those excuses. Think about it for just a second. You want God to show up on our terms and give us evidence that he exists? Well, he did in his incarnation, by becoming human and entering into our world in time and space and history in the very first century. You want God to enter into the mess of our world to do life with us, to experience all of our pains and sufferings? He did in his trial and execution. You want God to simply provide a way in which he forgives everyone? He did on his cross by dying in our in our place to pay for the sin that we ourselves could never pay for. You want him to provide us with a hope worth believing in? He has through his resurrection. See, over and over again, we, we make these demands of God, and what we find is that in Jesus, he's met every single one of them. You want evidence? He's given it. You want to know that he's a God of love who forgives everyone? He's done it through his cross. You want to know that hope exists for eternity? He did in his resurrection. So what do you really want is the question. I think what we really want is we just want God to leave us alone. I like how the atheist Thomas Nagel puts it in his book, The Last Word, probably one of the most honest things I've ever heard anybody say. I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. I appreciate the fact that Nagel is willing to be honest about that. Because see, what he's really saying is he's saying, I really don't have any reason for believing that there isn't a God, but I really hope that he doesn't exist. Why? Because I think many of us would just prefer to do life the way we want it. And that's part of the problem with our world. We have billions of people running around the face of this earth who at the very center of their lives have their own little kingdoms, their own little self-centered desires. That even in our best moments, we often act in only our own self-interest. And that when God actually shows up and offers us everything that we would say that we would want, we still reject him. That's exactly what Peter says. He says, Jesus came in your midst and performed all the signs and the wonders that you were hoping for. Jesus came in your midst to be the God dwelling in your midst that you have spent centuries praying that he would be. And yet when he showed up, you still rejected him. See, the problem isn't God, the problem is us. 
We as human beings are broken, turned inward, self-centered, and ultimately all the brokenness that we see in the world around us is simply the result of every single one of us pursuing our own little self-centered kingdoms. And, the, and all the, the wars and the violence and the conflicts are simply, the fa- uh, are simply evidence of our various kingdoms running into each other. We can't fix our world. We are the problem. And again, I think that flies in the face of a lot of our pop spirituality these days. It's part of the reason why this message is not only surprising, it's offensive, because we have countless religions and philosophies out there that tell us, hey, you can do it, you can, you can find meaning and purpose and life, but the reality is, is that at the end of the day, when we really look at ourselves and get honest with the answers to these questions, we realize that we can't, that we're broken, that we need help. But that brings us to the final surprising truth of this message. That although that might be the bad news, there's also very good news. The fourth surprising thing that we learn is that hope exists. Hope exists. He says that even though we rejected God, God knew that would happen. And he still raised Jesus from the dead. And because Jesus is alive... Because Jesus has paid the price for all of our brokenness and self-centeredness and wickedness, we actually have forgiveness. I love how he gets to the end of that prophecy from Joel and he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then at one point when the people themselves are cut to the heart and say, well, then what can we do? I mean, if we're guilty and this world is broken, what do we do? Peter says this, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. See, what I love is in that moment he's saying, the good news is, is that you don't have to do anything. It's already been done for you. He says, it's God who's calling you. I love that it says that they were cut to the heart. That's an act of response, not of decision. It's something that, that's the thing that we need to realize about Christianity. Christianity isn't a a set of beliefs that we adhere to. Rather, it's a message that captures us and captivates our hearts. It goes to the very core of our being and what we are ultimately longing for. It's something that, that, that sweeps us up into a grander story. And when the people say, so what do we do in that? Peter simply says, come and be baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is for the forgiveness of your sins. He says, you're being swept up into a story, so don't just keep going the way you were going. Be swept up. That's actually what repentance means. It means that we were going one way and now we've turned toward going another way. He says, so he's just saying, let the story sweep you up. I love how right here we actually see that there are three gifts that Jesus gives us. The first is that gift of forgiveness. Peter says, you are forgiven. It's not about you fixing your life up first and then you'll be accepted. He says, you've already been forgiven. You've already been accepted. Second thing we receive is a a new family. He says, be baptized. And this promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, all who the Lord our God will call. He says, you are now a part of a new family, a new community to do life with. 
And last but not least, we receive the very presence and power of God. He says, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you. You see, too often we live our life in this world as though our lives don't matter. Too often we live our lives in this world trying to satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts in self-centered ways that ultimately don't satisfy. Too often we live this life wondering, is there anything beyond this world and any hope for eternity? And at the core of the Christian message in the very first sermon is this surprising truth. That history, history isn't random. God is real. Humanity is broken, but hope exists. That's the good news that we preach. It may fly in the face of all the other self-help books that we love to pick up and buy. It might be a surprising message that seems upside down and backwards. But what we see is that in this message is a hope that truly lasts for eternity. It's that good news that makes us who we are as Christians, that we have been loved, pursued, claimed, and saved by a God who entered our world to rescue us. That we've been swept up into his story forgiven all of our wrongdoings, touched even in the midst of our suffering and brokenness, and welcomed into a new family, a new life, a new story, which has hope now and for all eternity. And Peter's answer is simply, so come along. Come along in this new family that God has invited you into and join us in proclaiming this surprising message of God's love, grace, and forgiveness, which gives hope to a desperate world. Let's pray. Lord God, we give you thanks that we have a surprising message. One which at first glance seems so strange, and yet that when we start to wrestle with it, really points us to the fact that you are real, that you love us, that you pursued us and welcomed us into your family. Lord, I pray that that message of hope and new life would stir our hearts would cut to the core of who we are and, and would sweep us up once more into your story that we would be people who proclaim that good news, that hope and that grace and that eternal life which you alone can give. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.